Well, on uh, this really celebration Sunday of what God is doing at Waukee Community Church, I just want to take a moment to remind you of why we exist as a church. We exist because we are bringing people together to live, love, and give like Jesus. And those words are all chosen very carefully for us. If you think about that in terms of bring people together, we're all about relationships at Waukee Community Church. We really believe that it's in relationship with each other that God uses us to transform each other to be in, molded into the image of Christ. And so we're bringing people together. And when we say live, love, and give like Jesus, we mean live Jesus lived a way of life in his teachings. We care about the Bible and living like those teachings. Uh, love, we believe that God calls us to love people. We're going to be talking about that today in this message. And then lastly, to give like Jesus. And we're not just talking financially. That's a piece of it, generosity. But we're talking about giving our lives away, our time, our energy, our effort. Giving our lives away like Jesus gave his life away. And so this is what we're doing at Waukee Community Church. We're bringing people together to live, love, and give like Jesus. And I just say that because it's good for all of us to hear that again. And if you're a guest with us today, we want to know this is what we're about. We, we really take this seriously, and we're doing it together. And God is doing great things in our midst because of that. Well, we're in this series on Ephesians called Embrace, Who Are You? Embracing Your Identity in Christ. And because what, as we have said now for uh, 15 weeks that we've been in this series, we have said and reminded you over and over again that this world is pulling at us, telling us things about us that, that some of them aren't even true. We've bought into things about ourselves that we have believed that if, because if we are in Christ, some of those things are not true. And what we need to do is those of us who are in Christ, we need to embrace who God says we really are. And so 15 weeks in the book of Ephesians as we're plowing through it together. And as I was reading this passage today, Ephesians 5, 1 to 20, I was reminded of the importance of being an imitator. Last Monday, Memorial Day, uh, um, I was mowing the lawn. And uh, it's really interesting, out of six kids, uh, four of them don't want to mow the lawn, the four that can. Uh, and the two that cannot would like to mow the lawn. And so Malachi, uh, who is a year and a half, uh, I was mowing the lawn and he had his sister's baby stroller. And uh, my one and a half year old was running down, up and down the sidewalk as I was going with the lawnmower. And he was just cruising right beside me with this thing, pretending to mow the lawn, as if to say, I just want to be like my dad, you know? And so I'd get to the end of the row and turn around and he'd look at me like, what are you doing? You just came from that direction. Why are you going that way again? But I'd turn around, so he'd struggle, and he'd get the stroller, turn around, and then pretty soon he's cruising down, and of course he was only in a diaper, so he's like a yard ape or whatever, and, and cruising after his dad. By the way, his dad was in more than a diaper, just so you know. But um, we're cruising down, and I was just thinking, this is such a cool moment. Like, he just wants to be like me, you know? Like, he wants to imitate me. You know, Nicholas used to be like that, too. Uh, they used to call him my mini-me. Um, he's no longer mini-me. <laughs> Maxi-me, I don't know what you call him now. He, he's big. And, uh, but he just used to look so much like me when he was a kid. People say, like, there, as a parent, isn't there this huge compliment when your kid just wants to be like you? And so we, you know, kids tend to uh, imitate their parents, and we either become like our parents, or sometimes we try to become as unlike our parents as possible, don't we? Like, I mean, all of us. In fact, I often do this in marital counseling. I'll ask a couple, what did you learn about marriage from your parents? And I'd say it's a 50-50 shot. 
50% of people will say, well, I learned X, Y, and Z, and I want to be just like that. And the other 50% say, well, I didn't learn a whole lot, but I know what I don't want to do. It's amazing. We tend to emulate our, emulate our parents either in ways we want to be like them or we use their example and try to be different. But we should be trying to imitate our Heavenly Father. I would ask you today, are, are you like your Heavenly Father? Would anyone confuse you? Would anyone go, is, is, is that, look at, that, that's like the Heavenly Father right there. Is she like him? Is he like him? Last Sunday, uh, Aaron Savage preached. He did a fantastic job handling the text. And uh, he reminded us that you are created to be like God. And so I want to jump off what Aaron did in the end of chapter 4 today and, and jump forward because Paul launches from there and he launches into chapter 5 and he says, be an imitator of God. So do you look like God? Are you trying to imitate him? You were created to be like him. Now are you living up to it? Those of us who are in Christ should imitate God. And this idea permeates the text we're in today. I think it's Paul's big idea for this section that he was writing in this book of Ephesians is be an imitator of God. He starts with it, but that idea continues. If, you, uh, if you'd like to write in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline these three phrases because they really form the backbone or the structure, the skeleton of what this text is about. The first phrase is in verse 1, be an imitator of God, be imitators of God. The second phrase is in verse 10. It says, find out what pleases the Lord. We're kind of in the same idea. And then lastly, in verse 17, he says, understand what the Lord's will is. We're going to be using these particular, the skeleton of this text in these particular phrases that are all really saying the same thing. Figure out how to be an imitator of God. And what we're going to do today is we're going to figure out together what it looks like to be an imitator of God. We pursue him so we can be like him. We study him so we know what pleases him. And we seek to know his will for our lives. He says in the text, verse 1, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. That's such an interesting phrase. We need to understand that in the book of Ephesians, Paul's been talking a lot about the concept of adoption. And at Waukee Community Church, we love adoption. We've seen a lot of adoptions happen in our church. It's just, it's really cool and it's neat. But sometimes what we forget is that the Roman understanding of adoption was a little bit different. It was a little bit different. People viewed children differently in the Roman world. Um, some stats say that as much as 50% of children didn't live past their first birthday in the Roman world. Can you imagine that? 40% the stats say didn't live to adulthood. So if a family wanted to have two children to be heirs, they would need to have five just to be guaranteed two adult children. I mean, talk about a world that it's hard for us to understand. On top of that, children weren't really all that valued. And so the way that wealthy people viewed adoption was not like we view adoption. They viewed adoption as a way to secure an heir. Because when they died, they wanted to leave their legacy or inheritance. In fact, a number of emperors of the Roman Empire did this. They would adopt adult children. Like full adults, they would adopt them so that they would have an heir to leave the empire to. That happened in several emperors. 
They adopted adults so they could have heirs. Todd Billings, in his book on the union with Christ, says this. He says, in, in the ancient Roman context, adoption was generally not about babies and childless couples finding a way to have children. Instead, the adoptees were usually adults. And adoption was, first of all, a legal arrangement to provide an heir who would receive an inheritance and enter into a new household with all its privileges and responsibilities. So when Paul talks about adoption, that you've been adopted, in that context, what Paul has in mind here is this beautiful picture of Christ adopting you as an adult, as an heir to his kingdom. This is really a beautiful thing. There are implications over this adoption now. And that is what Paul is talking about here. He says, here's the implications. If you're an adopted heir, a child, an adult child even, of the living God, first of all, be an imitator. Secondly, find out what pleases him. And thirdly, understand what his will is. It's really pretty simple. To understand, imitate, please understand. To truly embrace your identity in Christ, you have to understand God and then imitate him. And you have to understand who he is. Then you can seek to be more like him. You see, from this text today, we're going to see a couple of things, and it's a two-point outline. It's pretty simple. God is love, and God is light. So those of us who are in Christ should also be love and light. Let's look at those two concepts from the text. First of all, if God is love, you are love. That's the first point I want to talk about today, is you are love in Christ. Paul is wrestling with this concept in verses 1 through 7. If you like to outline text, that's great to just kind of put a, a, a line around the side of the text and write, uh, you are love. God is love, so in Christ you are love. The key phrase here is in verse 1. He says, therefore, as dearly loved children, you are loved by a God who loves deeply. He is love. First John 4, 8 says this, God is love. He's the origin of love. He's the one who defines love. He's the one who has love that overflows freely, and he loves you. We have talked about this concept over and over and over in Ephesians, how deeply God loves you, because it is foundational for understanding how we live and act. We live and act as loved children. One of the things I love about my life group is I know that on Tuesday night, when I show up, well, everyone shows up at my house, when they all come, I know that that's a place where I'm unconditionally loved. I mean, it's just a cool thing. Walk into that room, you know, I don't care if I've had a bad day or a good day. I, I might just be a bear, and my wife's like, I don't want anyone to be around you today. And I come in, and they love me no matter what. I mean, it's just cool. It's the same thing. Uh, I, my youth pastor, when I was a kid, used to tell me that uh, he wanted our youth group to be a place like uh, Cheers, where everyone knows your name, you know? And I love that. Like, and it was that, that I had a youth group that I was privileged to be part of that. In my marriage, I was just talking to Clarissa about this. It is so great. I, I got a date with my wife uh, this last week. It was wonderful. And uh, I was just thinking, no matter what, I know I'm unconditionally loved by my wife. I mean, it's truly amazing. And it changes the way that I live and act when we're loved. Did you know that your heavenly Father is a God who loves? And he loves you that way. So as a result, the text says, therefore, as a dearly loved child, what should you do? You should be an imitator of God. He loves you, 
So you should live a life of love. That's what verse 2 says. Live a life of love, just like Christ loved us and gave himself up. It's very interesting. We should be love. We should love because God loves. It's very interesting then that Paul talks in verse 3 about some crazy stuff. I mean, he gets into the stuff like all kinds of things that are not love. Because what Paul recognized, the very first thing Paul talks about then is he says, you are a dearly loved child. You should love. Then he says, don't be fooled by sexual immorality. Paul jumps right into a discussion of marital unfaithfulness. Why would he do this? Why would he jump into this right, right from the topic of how much God loves us? It's because Paul's culture, much like our culture, misunderstood love and intimacy. They just got it all confused. Um, I went, in fact, I was talking to Peg about her trip to Pompeii recently. If you know about Pompeii, it was a city, an ancient Roman city that was covered in ash and preserved. And they basically dug it out and you can see what life was like there. And uh, archaeologists, what they uncovered when they did that was they uncovered a lot of things I can't talk about today. <laughs> they uncovered things that would make our culture blush. The immorality that was prevalent there, that the things that they did it would make people in our culture blush because of how publicly it was done. And so when Paul says avoid this, there shouldn't even be a hint of it, he says. He's saying, listen, our culture has misunderstood love completely. Is our, and our culture is the same way. We've completely misunderstood love. Love and marital intimacy are related. They're together. You can't separate them. It's a, it's a beautiful way that God designed us. We don't just throw that away. Love and intimacy and marriage are, are connected. That's God's design for it. God likes intimacy. It was his idea. They're related. These ideas are, can be used, though, in a self-centered way. Our culture says, well, I'll go out and I'll do whatever I want and whatever's good for me, whatever makes me feel good, whatever I want to do, I have freedom to do that. But Paul says something different. No, love says self-sacrifice. I'll choose for someone else. And the point here is that God loves you so much that we should love our, each other with that kind of love and self-sacrifice. So then in verse 3 and 4, he continues this whole list of do-nots. And sometimes we get sidetracked with all the do-nots, you know? We think, oh, is, is Paul, you know, like just repeating another 10 commandments? Is just adding to the list of things that we can't do because Christianity is such a killjoy, you know? And not at all. What Paul is saying is if it, you should avoid these things because they're not love. Because you're love. God loves you. You overflow and love others. So in, he says, verse 3, put away impurity. You are love. Put away greed because you are love. Embrace your adopted status is holy. You're love. Verse 4, put away obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. Listen, you are loved. You don't need to do that stuff. Be thankful. <laughs> he says, be thankful. Look at verse 4, how he words that. He says, coarse joking, foolish talk, obscenity, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Do you understand thanksgiving is the antidote for all that stuff Paul just said? Listen, if you're one that you're just like, ah, you know, I love 
joking that's completely just out of line, and I, God's convicted me, and I need to get that in hand. Or maybe you're like, I got a potty mouth. Like, it's just part of me since I was 15 years old, and, and you know, I, I just, and that's me. And Paul says, you know what the end of for this is? It's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. You know, I tried to employ this in my own life. Um, one of the things my dad <laughs> would do uh, when I was a kid is, uh, my dad didn't have much hair in the top of his head, so uh, he would always hit his head on stuff. He was always hitting his head because uh, he didn't have his hair to tell him to stop. And so uh, he'd bang his head against something, and he'd get so mad and frustrated. I could just see him with all his being trying not to, you know, like, like lash out at the world. And so his face would turn red, and he'd just get, and that, the world knew that my dad was mad. And so I thought, you know, I don't want to be like that. So I, I, I've tried to... Uh, employ an attitude of thanksgiving. And it's really kind of funny. I didn't like how that happened. So whenever I hit my head or hit my thumb or hurt myself, you know, my, my kids will see, they'll see me yell, oh, I'm happy. <laughs> or like, that felt great. I'm thankful that my thumb is alive and it works today. <laughs> you know, and I just try to say, listen, thanksgiving is an antidote for all this stuff because I am loved by the Heavenly Father. This is beautiful. In verse 5, he continues, Paul continues, he says, listen, you want to put this stuff away because this kind of person, verse 5, the, the person that's immoral and pure, greedy and idolater, this is not a person that has an inheritance. This is not an adopted loved child. This is not what that looks like. What an adopted loved child looks like is completely different. Paul gives us some areas that are really about obedience here. And the problem is many of us look at this stuff and go, I don't want to obey. I'm tired of obedience. You know, I had to obey until I was 18 years old and moved out of the house, and I'm not interested in it anymore. Or I go to work and I have to obey my boss, and I hate it, and I don't want to obey. A lot of people think that obedience is something for kids who are under the age of 18. They think, okay, the rules, the, 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 all the stuff is for little kids. But once we get into adult, you, we kind of outgrow that. And then we kind of know enough to just figure it out on our own. But Paul says, you, you never stop being a child of God. You are loved. Live like it. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. You know... We live in this live and let live society that is just filled with empty words. There's philosophy that sounds great. You can justify anything you want in our culture, can't you? You can justify it any because this is the way I see it or this is the way I want to do it. We watch movies and TV that just pounds it into us. And we put so many hours of culture in our head that, that loves the phrases, don't judge me or to each his own or do whatever you want. Explore your independence. We hear these things so often. They're pounded in our head. But don't let it. Paul says, don't be deceived by all the stuff that's getting pounded in your head. Love is not like empty words. Love is different. Love is different. I think it's interesting that God talks, or Paul talks about God's wrath here. We don't like to talk about God's wrath, but 
Uh, it's right in the text. It's right in this passage where Paul is focused on God's love. Isn't that fascinating? He comes out as a dearly loved child, and then he's, and he's talking about God's wrath. And so many people think, well, boy, you know, if you do bad stuff, God's future wrath is coming. But, man, there's a present wrath all around us. And it's not because God is just this God that's vindictive and wants to smite people. It's because God knows that there's a natural consequence to what we do. And the beauty of it is that Christ averts the wrath of God. When Jesus hung on the cross for our sins, when Jesus spread his arms and died, the wrath of God went on him and not us. And it's, it really is an amazing and wonderful truth that Jesus, God incarnate, took our sin on himself. God is love. And if you're his child, you should imitate that. Be like him. God is love. You should love. There's a second point I want to talk about today in the second half of the text. If the first one is God is love, so you are love in Christ. You should also know that God is light, so you are light. Look at verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so live as children of light. You see the big transition he's made? In the first section, he's talking about God is love, so you are love. And now he makes a transition, verse 8. God is light, you are light. Live as children of light. Well, what does it mean that God is light? Look at the implications of verse 9. He says, okay, light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Um, good. You know, the Greek has an emphasis on Good is light and evil is darkest in the Greek and the Roman culture. And Paul is kind of playing off that a little bit here. He's saying God is good. God is right. There's a standard that he has. He's right. And God is true. And the light shines and allows this truth to be seen. Um, my basement is an interesting place. My basement is kind of kid zone. Uh, Clarissa and I, uh, probably more... I, I've given up, probably a lot more than my wife. She tries a lot harder than I do. But I've just kind of relegated the basement. That's kid zone. Um, but occasionally, I'll have to go down there. And uh, uh, it's dark. Like, if it's at night, it's really dark in the basement. And it's scary. It's scary not because there's a monster there, but because there are so many toys on the floor that I know that I'm going to wipe out and get completely injured in this process. And so, uh, so I walk into the room, and I go in there, and if I turn on the light, I actually installed a motion detector so that I don't kill myself if I go down there because I can see. But if I flip on the light and you look, what do I see? I don't see much good. I don't see what is right, it's far from the standard of holiness that we had set for our basement, right? And, uh, and it's, what is true about it is it needs a lot of attention. That's what the light reveals about the kid's zone in the basement. Isn't light like that in our lives? That's why Paul says in verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord. Flip on the light. Allow God just you just allow God to say, here I am, God. Flip on the light in my life and expose what needs to be exposed. Imitate him. And then he just continues in verse 11. He says, listen, this is what darkness looks like. Expose it, he says. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. 
for it is light that makes everything visible. I mean, these are great verses. Expose them. What does it mean? It says don't, don't hang out in the dark. Don't dwell in evil. Expose evil. We become light just like God is light. We become light just like him. And the, the light of Christ will shine. He says in verse 14, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is a really cool thing. Sometimes we get glimpses in Scripture of the liturgy of the early church. And this is probably, most uh, scholars think that this is a baptismal hymn. That this might have been sung or said at a baptism. Uh, and, and so that's a pretty neat concept. So the idea in baptism, of course, is you're identifying with Christ. You're going under the water with him in death and being raised out from the water to new life. Don't you love it? Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. You can see this being said. And the light of Christ will shine and change you. It should, the light of Christ should change the way we live. It exposes our deeds of darkness. It's one of the keys about the, what we're talking about in the map of transformation at Waukee Community Church that we'll be piloting this summer and hopefully rolling out as an opportunity for all of us to do in the fall. But just this idea of we're walking and we're saying, God, I want you to change me. It's a simple place to start. God, I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. Shine your light on me. In verse 15 and 16, Paul says, listen, uh, one thing that happens when the light shines on you is you're not unwise, but you're wise. The light of Christ exposes the darkness. I had an opportunity years ago to go out to an Indian reservation with a bunch of students. And when we went out to this Indian reservation, uh, we hopped on our particular site and began to, to do the work that we were doing with people. And this girl that was about 10 years old came up to us and she was holding her little three-year-old brother. And her three-year-old brother... Um, had been in a serious accident. His dad had thrown him in the car and drove drunk across the county, got in an accident. The little kid wasn't even in a car seat or a seat belt. And he had his skull um, bashed in, basically, by this accident. And, like, uh, it was just heartbreaking. Just heartbreaking as you watch this little kid. And there was so much darkness. But there was one of our students and on the trip. Her name was Aaron. And for the entire week there, Aaron took this little boy in her arms, this three-year-old boy who couldn't walk and couldn't move and couldn't do anything. And she just held that boy the whole week. And the light of Christ exposed the darkness. It was, be it was beautiful. You see, we get an opportunity, just like Christ is light, to bring the light of Christ to all those around us. And that's how we live wisely. God is light, so we can be light. We can expose the darkness, and we can live wisely. Um, if you walk down the hall, when I first come in this building on Sunday mornings early, and you walk down the hallway, what I find, whenever you walk into a room, the lights come on, because they got motion sensors, right? So that you know, they can save electricity and whatnot. And so it's kind of creepy. Sometimes you walk down the building and as you walk into a room, the lights just come on uh, all by themselves. But what's really cool, I thought that was a great illustration for how the light of Christ works. It's not a spotlight. There's not a spotlight that comes on me and, you know, I'm like, hello, Dave is here. Look at me. I'm awesome. No, the light just lights up the entire room. It's not about me being a spotlight. It's about the light of Christ. Be wise 
Be filled with the Spirit. Verse, I mean, he just keeps going on. Here's what it means. You want to be light? Uh, he says, uh, make the most of every opportunity. Be careful how you live. Uh, don't be foolish. Understand the Lord's will. Verse 18, don't get drunk, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't be so out of control, but be controlled by the Spirit. This is great because this is how we be light. We live wisely, controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's how we imitate. That's how we please Him. That's how we understand His will. Now, love and light. It's pretty simple. You are love. You are light. Because God is love and God is light. Paul wraps it up with this last thing. It's just, it's really neat. He said, here is an example, and he closes this section with these words. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God for everything. Speak, sing, give thanks. It's three simple ways to change the world. You know, at Waukee Community Church, we value relationships. We speak to one another in ways that are encouraging and lifting up and challenging. We sing. We sing here. It's good because it brings the light of Christ. You know, one of the values we try to have is that as our worship leaders, I know it, they want to hear you sing. They want to hear it. And like last week, it was Memorial Day weekend. And man, this group was belting it out. It was amazing. I was listening around and thinking, this is so cool. Sing. We want to lift up his name and give thanks. You do those things and you'll change the world. Because the world has far too little love. And the world has far too little light. Philippians says that we shine like stars in the universe. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to Africa five, six years ago. Uh, we landed in um, Senegal very much by accident, uh, God's intent, but we landed in Senegal. And uh, uh, we didn't know we were doing that until about 10 days we left, before we left on the trip. We went in Senegal and uh, we uh, partnered with uh, the Jesus film. And we went out into the middle of nowhere, Africa, and set up a screen to show the, a screening of the Jesus film in the native language of these people. And it was an amazing thing to literally bring light. I mean, you're shining a projector with the Jesus story in the middle of nowhere. And it's so wonderful. But we were out there. And on the way back, we packed everything up. And of course, you can't show the film till dark. And uh, I remember sitting in the back of this pickup. There were like eight of us packed in the bed of a pickup driving across the countryside. And I remember sitting there looking up at the sky. And I realized... Everything that I'm missing here in America. When I look, like the, the light drowns out all the stars here. You can't see much. But in Africa, I saw things I'd never seen before. Star, I mean, talk about when Abraham looked up at the sky and God says, see the stars in the heavens. Your descendants will be like that. Uh, I, it takes on a whole new meaning. As I'm looking up at these stars, all of a sudden I looked around and I realized that as faint as some of those stars were, it was so dark out that those stars provided plenty of light. I could see, it was midnight, and I could look around and just see everything I needed to see. When it's dark, God's light shines bright. This week, when you leave 
when you go, you get to be love and light to those you interact with. You're going to go to someone at work and you're not going to want to show them love, but you get to be the love and light of Christ. You may feel alone, unequipped, unprepared to make a difference, but if you are in Christ, you're not. You are not unprepared and unequipped because you have God's Spirit with you and you can be love and light in the Lord. We want to celebrate Him and His love and His light. Would you stand and worship as the team comes and leads us in response to God's great love and His light?